0: Good morning, guys. It is great to see you guys. We'll be in the book of Philippians this morning, the latter half of chapter 3. So if you guys will turn Philippians chapter 3. <laughs> it's going to be ominous this morning. So, But uh, I hope you guys had a great spring break. I hope you guys had some time to be away and to be refreshed. And so it is uh, a joy to see you guys back and to be here with you guys. Uh, we're going to be Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 to 21. So if you'll follow along with me, chapter 3, verses 12 to 21. Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude. God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. We pray with me? Father God, I thank you for the realization and the opportunity we have even this morning to, to sing and to proclaim a day will come when you will return. A day will come when death will not sting anymore and hell will have no victory. Uh, we, we proclaim a day that is coming in which your son, Jesus Christ, will return. Father, as we wait for that day this morning, Lord, I pray in a fresh way, Lord, that you would do for us what we most desperately need, whether we sense it or not. I pray that you'd allow us to see you afresh this morning. I pray that your voice and your spirit would come and that you would lead us, that you'd speak to us this morning and that you give us a fresh voice, a fresh sense of your presence. In the midst of all the things from our spring break and the first week back, Lord, in the midst of all the things that are swirling around us already, Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to hear you, that you'd still our hearts, that you'd calm our spirits. And that you'd allow us just to hear your voice. Um, that your spirit would tug on our hearts and that you would draw us to a place this morning that we could see you afresh and that we could respond to you afresh. And Father, I pray that you'd fill our cups, that you would fill our joy, and that we would feel drawn intimately before you this morning, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, I had the opportunity this weekend to hit the theaters, and uh, I was made aware that uh, Titanic is going to be re-released in 3D. Nothing created a greater sigh within me and complete apathy than that news, all right? Um, Like, we need a little bit more of a young Leonardo DiCaprio who was probably 100 pounds soaking wet on a good day, right? Uh, As if that movie needs to be re-released. But it it made me think, and it kind of took me back to uh, a story that I caught wind of earlier on in January. Uh, Some of you guys remember in December, uh, Marcy and I had a chance to celebrate uh, our 10-year anniversary a little bit early. Took off on a cruise, and so I I took note of a story that broke uh, in the middle of January of a cruise line... uh, a ship off of coast of Italy that actually hit a reef uh, and went capsized and in which actually 30 people's lives were lost in that incident and I kind of thought it was a little bit awkward to have, a, you know, a modern-day Titanic and then the Titanic store being re-released for us to all whack, walk back through, but uh, I kind of really took note of that story and kind of watched it evolve and emerge and really became obvious that uh, the captain of that ship had been grossly negligent in a series of ways to cause that accident and to be single-handedly responsible, really, for that accident. Uh, even the CEO of uh, the cruise line is really begun to distance himself, knowing this guy is about to get a lot of heat and a lot of lawsuits, and the company is really trying to uh, distance themselves, but really this guy committed three significant areas or issues or errors of negligence. First, uh, as this guy uh, overrode manual controls on the cruise ship and had the cruise uh, uh, depart off its normal path and had it in a sense, do a flyby or a a cruise by nearby an island, it was a gesture to one of the uh, chief waiters on board uh, as it was an island that he was from, and he wanted the cruise ship, in a sense, to kind of come nearby, blow its horn, and in a sense, wave to the island and say, hey, how's it going? Uh, Well, instead, as they came near, they ended up hitting a reef that was right on the coastline of that island, and they got way too close, and as a result of that... He had to maneuver the cruise ship to allow it to come as close to the island as possible and to be in shallow waters as it would, in a sense, capsize on its side. And and 30 people would lose their lives. In fact, it wasn't just that this guy really lost complete track of where he was currently and where he was trying to head. But as the story has, has kind of opened and emerged and as more details have come out, we've realized that that captain also completely failed to train his crew and even the passengers on board to respond properly in the event of an emergency. So as the story is broken out, we've realized that this cruise ship and these lives could have actually been saved. Uh, some people died needlessly only because there was a failure in training. And then lastly, and maybe uh, the most tragic really uh, that has come out is that this cruise ship captain really com- lost complete track of the timing of the situation in terms of how much time he had left to respond. He lost complete track of that. And really, as the stories emerged of this married captain, news has come out that he was actually entertaining individually a Russian lady on board. And upon hitting the reef and in giant sound that went out throughout the cruise ship and caused the whole ship to shudder, he proceeded to order dinner to entertain this young lady. All right. And, and as the story would go on further in conversations recorded with the Coast Guard, we found out that not only did he order dinner with this lady, but he actually evacuated the ship before everyone was off. All right. And so the Coast Guard is telling him, sir, you, you need to get back on the ship. It is your responsibility not to depart until all crew members are accounted for, until all passengers are off. And as he explained, apparently the ship rocked. He tripped and fell into the lifeboat. All right. And was off trying to oversee the evacuation from land and from safety at sea. All right. He lost complete track of the situation, the timing and what his responsibilities were. It's a horrible, tragic story of a single handed individual who really, because of the main fault of his own, really was single-handedly responsible for the tragic death of at least 30 in that story. It's interesting as we look at Philippians chapter 3 this morning, I think Paul is going to take us through those same three errors, actually, they're going to highlight for us the necessity of certain things in our spiritual life, certain errors that we have to avoid. Errors that he's going to in a sense liken our lives not to a cruise ship at sea, but in a sense to a marathon, a spiritual marathon, if you will, in terms of our walk and our relationship with Jesus Christ. I think Paul is going to do for us as he looks at our relationship with Jesus Christ, he's going to look at these same three errors. First, a failure to know where one's present location is in light and relativeness to the finish line that we've been called to and that we are running. Second of all, a failure to receive proper training. And last of all, a failure to really watch the clock and realize the amount of time that you and I have left in this race. That's where Paul is going to take us, those same three errors. And we're going to see that those elements are absolutely critical in our lives and that we have to give stock to them. In fact, I think this passage that kind of comes halfway through the book and hits us halfway through the semester, I think comes at a perfect time. I think for us, as we take off for spring break and come back, even just one week back into classes, you guys are already back into survival mode, right? Uh, All the relaxing that you guys had over the break, all the refreshment that you guys had, you're one week back and it's all gone and a a distant memory. Some of you guys don't remember what you did over spring break, right? You're just buried alive again, all right? And, And I think for you guys, as we walk through the last part of the spring, I think it's probably often one of the most stressful phases of the college academic year you guys have tests and projects and essays and uh, senior design projects and all the kinds of these things that are staring at you to this last stretch it is often in this last stretch of the race of this semester that you often can lose track of some of the basic necessities and some of the basic realities of what's required in this spiritual marathon In fact, this last stretch run it really isn't the last stretch run of your race spiritually speaking some of the things that are going to be critical for your race are absolutely critical this part of the semester. And so I think this passage is incredibly appropriate and incredibly timely for you and I. In fact, what Paul will do as he kind of starts us out looking at this race Is he's going to take us back to what what a, a runner would do at the beginning of any marathon. Really, the first thing that a runner would do at the beginning of any marathon is take stock of where he's located presently, whether that's the beginning line or if even it's halfway through the race, knowing where he is now and in light of and with respect to where he's trying to finish, Right. So if you ever, ever run a marathon, the first thing you do is not just land and show up and figure out, hey, where do you need to start? But then ultimately, hey, what's the route? Where are you headed? Where are you running? How are you actually going to finish this race? Do you know where you're going? In fact, Paul is going to start us out and he's going to say he knows exactly where he is and exactly where he's going. Notice what he says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. Notice as he continues on in verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, uh, going on to verse 14, but I press on. Paul will say in repeated fashion, hey, he's completely aware that in this race, he is not at the finish line in any way, shape, or form. Uh, he's got a lot of distance still to run, and whether it's for you guys academically or even you guys spiritually, you guys are not anywhere close to the finish line. For some of you guys, you may have just started running in the spiritual race this semester. Uh, maybe you guys have come to Lord already, but this is maybe the first semester, the first year you really started to decide, hey, I want to walk and I want to run with Jesus Christ. So you've jumped into this race and the question is, do you know where you're headed and do you know where you are? It's interesting as you look at the finish line and wonder in a sense, where was the finish line? What was Paul shooting for? Paul really picks that up really in the passage that we looked at a couple weeks ago as he looks at really, what is the finish line? He realizes he hasn't arrived, but where is he headed? If you guys look with me back to verses nine to 11 in chapter three, this is right where we came off of a couple weeks ago. If you guys remember that passage, Paul says that I may be found in Jesus Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What ultimately was Paul running after? What was the goal that was in Paul's mind? What was the finish line that he wanted to, to cross over that he wanted to finish? What was he looking and aiming for? I think ultimately Paul had two things in mind primarily. One is this, and that was intimacy. He wanted to know Jesus Christ. And we looked at that explicitly a couple of weeks ago, that the, the driving aim of Paul's life was a desire to know Jesus Christ. Second thing I think you guys see that he says he wants to be conformed to the death of Jesus. In fact, he's going to say in verse 12, "Now that I've already obtained it or have become perfect already. What was the it that he had not obtained? I think it was two things. One, it was intimacy with Jesus Christ. And secondly, it was conformity to Jesus Christ. For Paul, the ultimate goal of his life was to know Jesus Christ and to be like Jesus Christ. And that was true at every leg of the race, at every phase of his life. The overarching drive, the overarching aim of his life was to know Jesus and to be like Jesus. This is basic spirituality 101, all right? All right. And as you guys return back from spring break and we look at the last stretch run of the semester, I want to put before you guys the basic reminder that what your life is all about, no matter your degree, no matter the essays that are in front of you, no matter what's on your plate is that you are to call to know Jesus Christ and to be changed and be transformed to be like him. That was the overarching drive Paul had in his life and is the overarching call you have in your life to know Jesus Christ and to be conformed to his image. In fact, he's going to go on. He's going to say, I think we see this in multiple places. Actually, I think one of the most powerful passages that Paul will speak of the same idea is in Ephesians chapter one, you have this overarching idea of selection or predestination and election. And the great question is why did God elect you? If you know Jesus Christ, if you've trusted that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected to forgive you of sins and to grant you eternal life, why did the Lord bring you to a moment that you trusted in that message and that you realize that he chose you? He selected you. Why? What was his purpose in that? He says it in two ways, uh, verses four and five. He says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. The reason that he selected you, the reason that you've trusted in Jesus Christ is because you are to be conformed to his image. Even further, he says, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Second purpose that you've been chosen or elected is so that you would be adopted as sons so that you would know the father just as a son knows his father that you would have not just conformity to Jesus Christ, but that you would have intimacy with Jesus Christ. That's what this thing is all about over spring break. And for the last two weeks, really a new pattern has emerged. A new habit has emerged in our home. Uh, my little girl, Caroline loves to wake up. And the first thing that she asks me, the first thing that she wants to do with me is race. All right. Uh, literally, uh, for the last uh, two weeks, probably for about a hundred times now, in this one little tiny stretch in our house, we race. All right. So, uh, she, she invites me, she pulls me wherever I am. She says, Hey daddy, let's race. Let's race. Let's race. From the moment she wakes up, the moment she's done eating, all she wants to do with me is race. All right. And so same thing happens over and over again. We go to the same exact spot. She tells me that it's my job to say, ready, set, go. So I get in a position. I'm ready to say it. And then she, as quickly as she can, says, ready, set, go, and takes off to get a head start. All right. So she's off running. And so I do what any good father does. I try to distract her and, and hamper her. All right. So I, I pull her, I put her on the ground and I keep running, you know, and I, I let her catch up. I try to make it difficult. I try to make it interesting so that I don't win every time. I'm just kidding. All right. I let her win a lot. All right. All right. And so, but we do this a hundred times. All right. Uh, we've been doing this over and over for two weeks. I, and I, I began to think, what's the draw in it for her, right? Uh, it's clear that I can win anytime I want to, all right? I'm hoping she realizes I'm letting her win, but maybe not, all right? Uh, and so, uh, you know, and so every time the results are, you know, at some level they, they differ, but it's not like a novel new experience anytime, all right? And so I began to wonder, why, why did she want to race me, and why is she so into this racing thing, period? Uh, clearly, uh, my wife, Marcy, who's eight months pregnant, really isn't a good racing candidate right now, okay? Um, she's not on the move. Our little dog, uh, couldn't obey to save her life, so she's not a good candidate either. Uh, and so at some level, it's probably just me as her only option to race, all right? Uh, but even with only one option, why does she keep wanting to do this? Why is she so enamored with the idea and the opportunity to race? And it struck me in the last couple of weeks that maybe what's really driving her in this is that in the moment and racing with me, there's a sense in which all distractions in my life are removed. <laughs> when I'm racing her... I, and I've tried, but I can't be reading on my phone. All right. I'll, I'll let it get out of head. I've been trying to read an article and it doesn't work very well. Right. Uh, but in racing, there's, there's no way I can be distracted and race. Well, okay. I, I can't watch TV. I can't pull out my laptop. I can't be on my phone looking at something. In fact, in racing, I, I can't even hold another conversation with another individual very well in racing. I can't be doing any other project or any other thing, any other responsibility in my life. But when I'm racing her, I am fully hers. She is all of me. Because every distraction is removed in that moment, and she absolutely embraces it. Because in that moment, she's got all of me, and frankly, also, I have all of her. And really, the race that you are part of, if you know Jesus Christ, is all about that. In that race, what God wants you to know and what he wants you to realize is that you can have all of him. And that in that moment, in that race, what it's all about is knowing him and knowing more of him and going deeper with him. In the midst of whatever is on your plate this semester, your ultimate goal for the rest of the semester is to know Jesus Christ. We said that going into spring break, and I'm going to say that coming out of spring break. Because it's true, no matter your phase, no matter your transition, no matter your occupation, this is your ultimate call in your life, and that's to know Jesus. And whether you realize it or not, whether you want it or not, it is the cry of your soul. It is the spot that you will find the greatest and the deepest satisfaction. And we will try to find and substitute a lot of other things, but nothing will satisfy us like the opportunity to pursue and to know Jesus Christ more. It's fascinating as Paul goes on, because he's going to give us, in a sense, a very practical way to do that. Notice what he says in verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I don't know Jesus Christ fully yet. I've not been transformed fully like him yet. But here's what I do. But one thing I do, and I kind of laugh at this because he tells us two things that he does, which seems a bit ironic. So, But he says, uh, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Maybe in Paul's mind, it's all of one motion, so to speak. It's a forgetting of what lies behind and a reaching forward to what lies ahead. For Paul, in his pursuit to know Jesus Christ, I don't think that, in a sense, he was unwilling to reflect or look back. We see throughout Paul's writings and, frankly, throughout the entire Bible We're called to look back on what God has done and what He's taught us, how He's moved in our lives. Reflection, uh, thanksgiving, memory uh, of what God has done and and the chance to celebrate that and reflect that is hugely significant as we press forward. Yet I think what Paul is saying is something a little bit different. I think ultimately what Paul is saying as he looks at his own race is the question that I think he's asking and saying to us is also this. Are you living in the spiritual past? As you walk with Jesus Christ and as you sense him calling you to different things, are you relying and are you resting on the laurels of your past? Thinking, hey, that spring break trip, that mission trip that I just went on, that I just got the t-shirt on, uh, I can kind of sense kind of check that box of my spiritual life and now I'm going to focus on school the rest of the semester, right? Or or as God calls you to things, as he invites you to come and know him more deeply, uh, do you find yourself in a sense resting on, hey, uh, I've known you and, and I'm quite content where I am. In fact, don't you remember that great retreat I had over spring break? Don't you remember that great moment that you and I had? (laughs) Why do you want more? I think for some of us, we can resemble that uh, high school senior who was uh, incredibly memorable in high school, was a football player who took a state championship team to the playoffs, uh, who had the cheerleader girlfriend, and then at your high school graduation, you'll find in five years has not moved on from those moments, right? Uh, You look at his life and you feel incredibly, at one point in high school, jealous. And now uh, after college, you'll find you're incredibly judgmental going, man, why is this guy that seemed to have all the potential in the world, a colossal failure? And why is he still living in the past, (laughs) recounting the stories of high school as if that's all he's got? And I think for some of us, we can be just like that guy, still living in the past of where we have walked with Jesus, what we have done for Jesus, and yet not looking toward the future of going, hey, where is God calling me now? I want to ask you, not just if you're living in the past, but are you reaching forward today? As you look at the rest of the spring, hey, where is it you think God is calling you to? How do you want to grow deeper? Uh, How do you want to grow and mature uh, more broadly? What is it God has for you as you look at the rest of the spring? I want to challenge you to put that question before the Lord as you jump into the rest of the spring and go, hey, Lord, what do you have for me? How are you trying to stretch me and how are you trying to grow me in a deeper way? And and where do you want to pull me even in my own relationship with you? Or are some of us just content with wherever you are? (laughs) I'm good. I'm pretty content with where I am. I'm just going to plateau really for the rest of the semester. And the reality is none of us can plateau. We're either growing or we're backsliding backwards. And there's no way to just hit the pause button on this thing. We're either growing forward or we're sliding backwards. It's the same with our walk with the Lord as is any other relationship in our lives. And I think it's fascinating where Paul will take us. I think not just helping us think through our route where we are now and where we're headed, but I think he's going to hit us with another concept that's absolutely critical. And that's one of training. I think what Paul is going to do for the runner and for you and I and our walk with Jesus Christ is stress for us the absolute necessity and the importance that we receive training. Uh, Not just that we know where we are and where we want to finish and the goal we have in our life that's driving us, but secondly, that we would be those that would see the necessity to receive proper training. Notice what Paul says in terms of this race. Notice what he says in verse uh, 16. Look how he continues on. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. He's going to say over and over in three different ways that there are a series of examples that you and I have in our lives that that we ought to follow. He says, the standard by which you and I are to live and to run this race is one that we have attained. That's one that was given for us It's one that was handed to you. He compounds that. He goes on to verse 17. He says, brethren, join in following my example. The example by which you are to walk your spiritual life out is one that you received and that you received and, and followed behind somebody else. He says it another way right on after that, and he says, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. What Paul is saying in three different ways is for you to know how to run the race and to walk with Jesus Christ, it's not something you ever are born just knowing how to do. The spiritual life is something that you inherit. It's something that you see modeled. It's something that you observe and you learn from those that have run before you because it's not something that you will ever have figured out by simply just intuiting it and figuring it out on your own. Romans 8 will speak of the fact that you and I don't know how to pray. So the spirit intercedes for us. How do you and I learn how to pray? It's from the body of Christ and those that have come before us and that have modeled for us how we pray from scriptural passages as well that teach us how to pray. But in every arena of our spiritual life, everything about our spiritual lives is something that we've seen modeled, that we've observed and that we've followed behind somebody else. It's not just doctrine. It's it's every aspect of our lives. And it's even things that are incredibly practical How in the world are you going to learn how to date in a godly manner? I could talk until I'm blue in the face about that up here, but you have to see it lived out. You have to see it modeled by somebody else. How are you ever going to learn how to love a spouse and have a healthy marriage? You have to see it lived out. You have to see it modeled by somebody else so that you can follow behind that. Have you ever learned how to raise kids in a way that honors the Lord? Some of you guys, frankly, have come from families and have come from backgrounds where what you saw modeled as something that that you are sure of is that you do not want to follow that example. Some of you guys that come from families where you go, uh, whatever I want in the future is as far away from that. The reality is you need a new model. You need a new pattern to follow behind. You have to see it lived out in front of you, which is why Paul is going to say everything about the spiritual life is something that is an example, a pattern uh, and a model that is followed behind that is observed and that is received everything in your spiritual life. You have to pick up from somebody else. It's never, and it's nothing, anything that you're born knowing how to do. In fact, the reality and the danger is that there are a lot of bad examples out there. And so Paul goes on further and he says in verse 18, for many, these bad examples of whom I've often told you and now even tell you weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. The reality is you are going to follow some kind of example in every arena of your life. The question is, what kind of example will you follow? really what Paul is, I think doing here in Philippians three is something that he's touched on a a lot more clearly in other places is he's unpacking really what I'm going to refer to as a discipleship strategy. Uh, Really. He's unpacking really the norm for how the spiritual life is passed down. It is something that is handed down through a a process that I'm going to refer to as discipleship. In fact, uh, Paul will speak of that same process uh, in Second Timothy chapter two, verse two. Notice what he speaks of in terms of doctrine. He says, "This things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." What's Paul saying in Second Timothy chapter two, verse two? How many generations are present in what Paul is foreseeing and talking about? Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, what I've told you, here's what I want you to do with what I've told you and passed to you. I want you to take this deposit of truth and I want you to pass it to somebody else. In fact, I want you to pass it not just to anybody, but I want you to pass it on to people who will be willing and able to pass it to somebody else. In one verse, Paul is speaking of something that spans four generations spiritually. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to somebody else and from them to somebody else. But it doesn't just stop with those four generations because what Paul is intending and what he's foreseeing is something that is a cascading movement, all right? As Paul passes on, as it be passed on to somebody else and it's continue over and over and over again. And that really is the model that Jesus set up and the model that Paul is going to maintain really as he looks at how the church is to grow. Remember Matthew 28, Jesus will say, uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. How is the kingdom of God to be advanced? It is through discipleship. And how does discipleship work? How does it look? I'm going to argue to you guys that I think it cascades and it works in a way that is completely contrary to a lot of the ways that you and I think about success and think about growing anything. Like I want to, in a sense for you, uh, highlight a a phenomenon or a distinction between how uh, a movement can occur. And what I want to do is, is show to you guys really what the scriptures are going to talk about is something that happens in everyday life. All right. As you look at trends today, as you look at uh, movements today, things don't just happen in light of and by the impact of one single person, but things span networks of relationships and trickle down through relationships, all right? Which is why it's not coincidence and it didn't happen that a bunch of people just woke up one day and thought, you know what? I just spontaneously thought that I think what would be a fantastic story that would be really, really gripping is to have teenage kids killing one another in a set of competitions that would take over America, all right, and have huge lines in the box office this weekend, all right? And you know I'm talking about Hunger Games, all right? Um, it wasn't by coincidence that we all just thought, hey, that's a, a phenomenal idea because you see it on video, you're like, this is horrific, right? Just the thought of it, right? But how did that happen? Did movements of literature or of movies or any other thing in our contemporary culture occur because one person had an impact with a bunch of different individuals? No. And it wasn't coincidence either that you thought that was a great book series and you wanted to go see the movie because someone else had talked you into it. You saw someone else reading it and you got into it and it just began to cascade from one person to another until all of a sudden you had this cult-like movement uh, that assembled itself in the theater and at least people weren't dressing up like Harry Potter, all right? Praise the Lord, it's different, all right? Um, So why, how does that happen though, all right? I wanna wanna contrast for you two different approaches to see if movement occur, okay? Uh, And and I'm gonna uh, picture these as evangelism and discipleship and by doing that, let me just, tell you guys what I have in the column on the left evangelism. I'm not just talking about evangelism. All right. What I want to do for you guys is is portray a a, a way to impact people through one approach or another. And and really what I'm trying to say in terms of evangelism is just the idea that by impacting people and having a movement grow wide or large, you cannot do it in and of yourself. For example, if I had the opportunity to impact personally a thousand people a week, with a message or whatever, I'd had the chance to impact 52,000 people in a year, but I'd have one conversation and one in- interaction. And then I'm done with that person. Meanwhile, I could have another choice. So I'm going to refer to it as discipleship in which I spent an entire year building my life into one person, uh, huge statistical difference, right? But how does an impact occur in terms of depth and width over the long haul? How are these things diverge? Year two, uh, if I continue this approach, I would have an opportunity to have 104,000 interactions and and opportunities to impact individuals all through me. Or what I could have done in year two is after spending a a year with an individual that I discipled to taught all that Jesus knew and commanded and taught him to grow in his faith and love Jesus and prepared him to go and disciple somebody else at the end of year two, that individual would be discipling someone and I would be discipling someone. And then all of a sudden we'd have four people who know Jesus Christ or walking with Jesus Christ and are ready to disciple somebody if that if that approach continued on where someone who was discipled had the opportunity to go and then disciple somebody else, how would these numbers statistically continue on? What would happen year 15? If I continued with 1000 people a week, I would have had an opportunity to impact 780,000 people over 15 years but I would have had one interaction with that one individual and never have talked to them in the rest of my life. Or everyone that we would have been discipled would be discipling somebody else. And all of a sudden we now have 32,768 people who know the Lord, love their faith, are discipling others. Here's a fascinating thing. As you go a little bit further on in the timeline by year 33, in terms of uh, the opportunity for me to impact a thousand people a week, I would have only reached 1.7 million people. If I have an opportunity to to disciple people who turn around and disciple others, notice the impact over 33 years, I would have reached, in a sense, 4.3 billion people. The width and the scope of discipleship is far greater than just trying to get a bunch of people in a big room and having a one-shot at them. The way that movements occur, the way that depth and the world is changed is by you making a choice to invest your life deeply into an individual, not largely into as many people as possible. And I think that is so diametrically opposed to how we think. And I think for so many of you guys, you're involved on campus and you want to do every single thing that you can do possibly on campus. You suffer from serious issues of overcommitment. <laughs> uh, if I were to look at your calendar, what I would find is that there are, everything's like scheduled into 10 minute blocks and you're just running around with your head cut off just trying to get to the next thing. Because if you're late on anything, then your whole day is ruined, right? Uh, because you want to do as much as you can, you want to get to as many people as you can. Because you think at some level that is success, that is significance. Let me tell you, that is anything but a lasting, deep, significant impact on the world. The greatest impact you can have on the world is what Paul is setting us up to realize is the pattern and the example of how we are to grow in our faith. And that's through discipleship. It's through the opportunity to, to first receive and then eventually to pass on not just doctrine, but life. To show people, hey, here's what it looks like to walk with Jesus Christ. I'll tell you guys, for me, this was hugely significant. Um, and, and I think you see this even in Titus chapter two, uh, where Paul will say older women are to encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. That in terms of discipleship, it is often an older generation with a younger generation, the older generation impacting and drawing the younger generation up. And, and I, I simply want to ask you this morning, do you have a mentor? Do you have anyone who's discipling you? Do you have anyone who's looked at you and said, hey, here's what I want to do. Here's where I'd love to see you grow. And here's how, here's where we're going to run this semester or this year. Is there anyone who's in your life who's modeling for you and showing you, hey, here's what it looks like to walk with Jesus Christ. Because if you do not have that, you are going to be stunted as to how you can grow and where you need to reach because you and I don't figure this thing out on our own. (laughs) We figured out with community of those that are just like us and we figured out with those that are, that are way far beyond us that are showing us and highlighting for us through wisdom and experience, things they've learned and things we need to pick up along the way. I'll tell you guys, for me, as I've walked with the Lord, sure, I was impacted by a series of pastors along the way, but some of the people that were the most impacting were the people that were daily in my life. I'll tell you guys, as a freshman, I was in a Bible study here at Grace and I had a senior who wasn't my Bible study leader, but he's a guy who just said to me and another friend, here's what I want to do with you guys. I want to meet with you guys for an hour every Friday morning for the entirety of your freshman year, and I want to teach you how to pray. And so for every Friday morning for my entire freshman year, I met with this guy at eight o'clock in the annex, and we prayed together. And through those Friday mornings, I learned how to pray. He taught me how to pray. I'll I'll tell you guys, uh, for me, another uh, significant individual in my life is a guy named Paul Bentley. Uh, This is a picture of him. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys are historian buffs, but uh, this is a picture of the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas, uh, Texas in November of 1963. Uh, The guy on the right with the cigar uh, is Paul Bentley. Paul lived directly behind me uh, growing up. And uh, at the time, he was retired. At the time, he was running all over the place doing interviews on the assassination, uh, doing tours, signing books. He uh, was incredibly well-known throughout all of Dallas. Uh, and uh, when certain movies were written about JFK and the assassination as well, it brought a huge new sense of popularity around him and, and really busied him. And yet, I'll tell you uh, what he would tell me and what he did tell me all the time. His greatest significance and his greatest lasting impact was not those tours and those interviews and those books that he signed it was with the neighborhood kids that he built his life into. And I was the last one that came through the neighborhood. I shot baskets uh, every single night uh, and my garage fed right into his backyard that had no fence. And so every single day I found myself at some point for long stretches, for sometimes for short stretches on his back porch, just talking about life. And he taught me what it looked like to walk with Jesus Christ. And he had an impact in my life that a pastor and a parent could not have. Because he was just willing to invest and he was willing to love me and talk about life, even in the midst of the weirdness and the superficiality of high school. And he loved me and he cared for me. I'm going to ask you this morning, do you have anyone that's like that in your life? And if you did, are you open to their kind of input and their opportunity to model for you and to call you forward? You need those kinds of people. Let me just tell you this morning, if you were in a place where you say, Hey, I'd love a mentor. I'd love someone to disciple me. Uh, I'd love for you to come talk to me. I'd love for you to email because we'd love to find for you someone that can walk with you. Uh, Our vision as a church is to raise up next generation leaders to reach our world for Christ. And our church is all about a university family church. What we want to do more than anything for you guys is in the short time that we have with you, however long that is, is we want to see you grow in your faith and we want to have you have an opportunity to walk alongside of a family and have an opportunity to enter into the life of a family uh, and to be impacted and to see marriage, to see family, to see spiritual disciplines that lived out and modeled for you because there's nothing that you will figure out by yourselves. Everything that you will learn and you'll be stretching your faith is something that you will see modeled and something you'll see lived out in front of you and you need those kinds of models. There's all kinds of ways to find them. There's all kinds of ways to, to find those opportunities. Uh, let me just say, hey, come talk to me. If, if that's something that you're interested in, we'd love to help make that happen for you. And, and one of the reasons that we do that, though, and one of the reasons why we see church to be like that and why I think Paul has laid down that kind of sense of how the spiritual life is to be grown and to be learned in is because part of what you're called to is not just to to have things modeled to you, but you are called to also eventually to be a model. Uh, So I want to ask you, not just if you have a mentor or a discipler, but let me ask you also this morning, are you a mentor and a discipler to anybody else? Let me just say, uh, if you're a sophomore here, it does not mean that you have no opportunity to be a mentor or a discipler. You don't just have to be a senior. You don't have to be a gray-haired, retired guy to have something to pass on and something to have an influence over. Let me challenge you to ask the Lord just to simply put on your heart and to open your eyes and say, hey, Lord, where could I step in? Where could I invest? Where could I have an opportunity to make an impact? And maybe that's not immediately the rest of the spring, but maybe that's as you look toward next year. Going, hey, Lord, uh, where could I step in and where could I be challenged and mentored? And then also where could I turn around and be a blessing and a mentor to somebody else? There's all kinds of opportunities, not just within campus, but also within youth stuff, children's stuff, all kinds of things, even in the community where you can have an opportunity to be an impact and to be a mentor to somebody else. Even if you are new in your faith, you have something to pass on, something that's incredibly valuable, even if it's just the gospel. And as you know, Jesus Christ, and as you walk with Jesus Christ, you have an opportunity to draw people and invite people forward, which is what Paul is doing. When Paul says, Hey, follow my example. At some level, it sure sounds prideful, right? I got this thing figured out. Come on, little, little chap. I'll I'll show you what this is about, right? I don't think that's at all what Paul is doing. What Paul is doing is basically saying, Hey, here's who I am pursuing after with all my heart. And I'd love for you to come and follow because ultimately your confidence is not in me. Your confidence is in the one I'm pursuing. And ultimately, if you want to be a mentor, it's not about what you know about your skill sets, but it's about the one you're pursuing, that you're asking other people to come follow along and come c- come with me as I run after this one. Ultimately, that's what it's all about for all of us. It's not that we assemble a, a mass of people that make us look important, but we assemble a mass of people that are all pursuing after Jesus Christ. And that is what the spiritual life is all about. That's where we started this semester, to be a disciple and to make disciples. And I want to remind you guys, as you look at the latter part of the spring, and as you guys make a lot of decisions, even about next year, let me put that in your grid to process. Uh, do you have a mentor and can you be a mentor to somebody? And that is the significance of the spiritual life. And that is how the kingdom of God is growing and pressing forward and how you will be stretched as well as you are challenged to lead somebody else. Ultimately, what Paul will do is he kind of closes out the section, is it, since I think he's going to turn us to the clock. He's caused us to consider really the route we're running and he's caused us to consider the training we've received in the race. And I think the last thing that he wants to do is call us to consider uh, the clock that's ticking down on the race. In every competition, in every uh, athletic venue, that clock is usually not your friend. And, And notice what Paul will say of the clock that's ticking down on our race. Notice what he says. Verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble saint into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The interesting thing about the race that you and I are part of, if we know Jesus Christ, If we've trusted in him for the forgiveness of our sins on the basis of his death and his resurrection that showed he had the ability and the power to forgive sins. It's not just that he will redeem us and has promised that already now, but a day is coming that that resurrected one will return and establish a kingdom in which he will bring about a resurrection of all the things that you and I see now. As the clock ticks down on our race, so to speak. And as we look at everything around us, nothing appears as it will appear in the future. In fact this is a race that none of us will finish which frankly seems a little bit disillusioning right (laughs) paul says hey here's what i want you to do i want you to press for the finish line which is to know jesus christ and to be like jesus christ but none of you will cross that finish line knowing jesus christ and being like jesus christ because for for all of us it will it will never happen until we're actually in the presence of jesus christ for all of us that means that our clock will tick down and we will die and yet we will go into the presence of god where he will eventually finish that process in our lives so for all of us, we are pushing toward a name that very few of us or none of us actually will ever experience in this lifetime. And yet, the opportunity to pursue it has an impact on all of eternity. It's not just that the finish line is later for all of us, but our, the way that we race, the way that we run now will have an impact for all of eternity, even though none of us will cross that finish line and any of us will ever arrive. That's where Paul starts. Not that I've already obtained it or already become perfect. None of us are here. None of us have ever arrived or will arrive until we're in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so uh, what I want to do for us as we wrap up this morning is is, uh, hopefully I have an opportunity to respond in worship. Um, And so Tyler and the crew is going to come up very spontaneously this morning. Uh, And I want to, as we were worshiping this morning, uh, there's a song we ran through that I thought, how perfect for this passage. Uh, I want you guys to think too, just in light of, hey, where are you in this race? Where is it you feel Jesus Christ is calling you toward? Where is it you feel he's stretching you? And I want to remind you that he's always faithful in the midst of wherever you are. Even the circumstances that seem to be challenging, even the circumstances that seem to be telling you, hey, Jesus is absent, (laughs) he's never absent. And some of the hardest things at times what you're finding is it is in those places that you could know him the most deeply and at times be transformed the most deeply as well. So I want us to have a chance to respond in worship this morning to that. Father God, we give you great thanks for you are faithful. You never leave us. You never depart from us. Father, for your chief aim in our lives is that we can know you and that we can know you deeply. So therefore, you would never leave us. You would never depart. And Father, I pray this morning if there are some of us who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would draw near to us, that you would allow us to see you in a way and respond to you in faith. That you are the one who has died on our behalf. You are the one who is resurrected. You are the one who will one day return. And that our lives are found in you and in you alone. And Father, I pray that we would find in you a a security of relationship that maybe we've never found before. That maybe today would be the day that we would trust you for the first time. For those of us who know you and have been walking with you, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that in our walk and in our race with you that you never depart, even in the most difficult stretches, that you are always present, you are always at our aid. And Lord, I pray that we would find in your presence a depth, a joy, and a satisfaction this spring unlike anything we've ever found before pray that you would draw us near to you, that you would draw us deeper, even when it seems that we can't go further. Lord, I pray that you would stretch us and that you would teach us and that you would assemble those around us in our lives that would call us and invite us forward and that you would assemble just the people that we need, just the people in the right places to teach us the right lessons. And Lord, that you would allow us to be humble enough to hear those lessons humble enough to desire those answers and and desire the wisdom and the humility of those that have gone before us, Lord. I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would draw us closer to you and that you would change us. Lord, give us yourself this spring. Allow us to draw deeper to you and to long for you more than anything else, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit, amen. You guys, thanks for being here this morning. It's great to have y'all back and hopefully we'll see you guys at Roses for some delicious Mexican, all right? See you guys.